my name's Kevin Taylor. I was born in a small, small community, the housing projects of Cabrini Green. I had a lot of struggles. I had a lot of issues coming up in Cabrini, trying to live a life that pleased God. Are we in the apocalypse? Maybe that's a question you've heard family members, coworkers, or friends ask from behind masked faces or video chat windows. As we face a global pandemic, racial tensions, and a fractured political climate, this feels like an apocalyptic time. These issues can divide us and put immense stress on our everyday lives. Whether it's brutality towards people of color captured on cell phone videos, partisan corruption, or seemingly continuous news of natural disasters, we are almost becoming desensitized to the tragedies that we witness. The word apocalypse comes from a Greek word that means an unveiling or unfolding of things not previously known, and which could not be known apart from the unveiling. This word has been co-opted to describe what some would call the end times, but the book of Daniel uses the apocalyptic style to catalog a time in biblical history when Daniel is used by God to allow an ancient people living in a powerful empire to see truth of the world as God sees it. It's powerful. Its purpose is to open the eyes of God's people. In a time when we're all wearing masks, how many of us have eyes to see the world the way that God does? Throughout the journey through Daniel, we will experience stories of people from our own church community as they share their experiences of apocalypse and awakening and discover that even when all hope seems lost, God is at work creating something beautiful. I first met Kevin while making a fundraising campaign for his organization, You Are Chicago Alliance. They provide access to living wage income opportunities through job readiness, training, and long-term mentorship. I wanted to reconnect with him because his story was so rich in this new context of the journey through Daniel. Having grown up in Cabrini Green, being influenced by violence at such a young age, and the encounters he has had with God dramatically changed the trajectory of his life, and subsequently the lives of so many others. Kevin has unique and important perspective on cross-cultural ministry and what the justice is that Jesus calls us to. As someone who grew up in a system of privilege, it's my honor and practice to put myself in a posture of listening and receiving stories through humility, listening actively, and not assuming I know the story that is being presented. Rather, I try to let each detail represent the person I'm talking to, knowing that each of us is still a work in progress. My hope is that through understanding each other, we might have eyes to see the greater narrative that God is writing through humanity. So my family comes from the South. They, they fled terrorism from the South, the racism, the KKK, all of that coming to the North. Uh, and it wasn't for the opportunities that they were fleeing from discrimination, from racism, from oppression, from slavery, all of that. So my grandmother had, she had six kids. My mom was the youngest girl. We came to the North with nothing. It was just flee the South, get to the North, and ideally life will be better. My mom was the youngest of six, youngest girl of six, and she had three boys. And so I'm the middle boy in the family. 
And so the rest of the siblings initially came to Chicago. We were relegated to the projects. And so me and the boys, my mom was a single mom trying to raise three boys in the Cabrini Green housing projects. Folks that are poor, as a place where the city, they could have folks live instead of spread out throughout the city. They just started learning to stack people on top of each other. So Cabrini Green was one of the most notorious housing projects. What was it like living there, you think? Uh, you know, there's two sides to the coin, right? One side, coming up initially, Cabrini was a great place to live. It was like a small hometown feel, like if you were in the Bible Belt somewhere in the Midwest, a small town where everyone knows your name, everyone knows your story, everybody knows where you're from, your family, that type of place. So if you needed something, you could go to your next door neighbor and ask them for a cup of sugar, some milk, right? And when we get paid, we'll, you know, we'll take care of you guys. And so we had that community. And so in that regard... Cabrini was an amazing community because there was a lot of poor folks just trying to survive and take care of each other. And so there was a great feeling there. But on the obverse side of the coin, when drugs and all the negative things started to, to happen in Cabrini early 80s, it started to switch. When drugs started happening and folks were selling marijuana, but then that changed over to cocaine and heroin and all these things that brought fast money in. So then folks started arguing and fighting over territory. And so what you have is this place that used to be a small hometown feel, but now you got the <laughs> the neighborhood famous guys who are now the drug dealers and the gang leaders, right? And so you have this relationship with folks, but now these guys are doing stuff to destroy the community. So you start having a shooting people addicted to heroin and crack and all those things, and the decline of the community almost instantaneously occurred. So Cabrini had a a horrible reputation for just murder and violence for a number of years. Um, And so that's what I grew up in. I grew up seeing the daily shootings, the murders, you know, folks being found on elevated dead. For a kid, that must be traumatic. (sighs) Yeah, yeah. So, like, kids are resilient, though. That's the crazy part about it. Sometimes we fail to realize that God creates kids and children to be resilient, right? Because we are created in His image. But the trauma that you experience when you grow up and you start to see this stuff at an early age, man, it changes you. It actually it makes you feel so unsafe, so insecure. Like anything is liable to happen to you, right? You can't trust anyone. As a, as a kid, I, I think I saw my first murder at probably 11, and he was shot in the head. And when we saw him get shot in the head, we actually saw blood spilling from It's like worse than a movie, and this was a reality many times for us growing up as kids. Oh, man, mom was going through a whole lot of things like some of the sacrifices she had to make, some of the stuff she had to do just to provide for her three boys. My mom was really diehard and not allowing us to get caught up in the gang life. She would be out there screaming at the guys like, my baby's not going to be in the gangs. They're not going to do that. Y'all need to leave them alone. Growing up in this environment really, really, really started you having questions, like really deep philosophical and, and really deep questions at an early age, like, what is going on? Like, what is life? What is this world? Am I safe? Who can protect me? 
why is there even a draw to join the gang life? The draw of the gang life is that when we talk about that security, like as a kid, you like living in just like, man, this is, you know, <laughs> you know, life is great. Everything is fine. You're living in a, you know, in a world that you don't really understand what could go wrong. Right. And so you just live in happy go lucky. And then when you see someone murdered in front of you, it changes you. And then you start having people in your family being taken away and murdered. And it starts to rapidly and gradually change you. But in Cabrini, but in most projects in urban settings, the mindset is I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. Meaning I'd rather be caught with a gun or something that I shouldn't have, but I'm caught with that. At least I'm alive than not have this gun on, in my possession to defend myself if someone comes up looking to take my life, right? Yeah. And so you have actually an entire generation, not all, but a lot of people thinking in this mentality that I have to defend myself at all costs, right? And so the gang is a lure to you. One, is there that protection? It's a sense of community, it's a sense of family, and it's a sense of protection. What does that gang life bring to people even economically? If you actually took the time to study what's the benefit of being in a gang, especially if you're poor and you don't have a, a solid family structure, the benefits of being in a gang, I mean, they're tremendous, right? In your mind, if you're not going to school, if you're not educated, there is very few job opportunities presenting themselves for you. When you don't have mom, you don't have dad, you don't have that community, the folks showing you that there's a different path, that this is the life I, you know, I desire for my son or my daughter, a successful life of going to school, becoming educated, giving back to your community, buying a house, getting married, like all those things. This That's is, the American dream. Exactly. Right? As it's been told to us, <laughs> at least, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so sometimes that's not a true reality when your value, right, when you've historically seen people like you murdered, people like you who don't have value, people who look like you that are demonized in movies and, and media, right? The narrative for people of color coming up in our society, especially if you're living in the projects. The role models you have are the guys that are directly in front of you, right? They're in proximity and you can see them, you know, you can take skills and traits and characteristics from these guys. Like, and sometimes these guys are pretty cool, right? They have, <laughs> they have what it takes, right? They, you know, the demeanor, they have the money, they got the cars, they got the women, they, you know, they have the status, yep. the protection in the community, right? And so you see this as the model for success. This is what success looks like. This is what I'm going to become. And so, so the gang offers you that as a way of dealing with your shortcomings. You dropped out of school. You didn't get the degree, any of those things, right? And so you feel inadequate. If you go around college students, you go around anybody that's 401K, doctors, lawyers, right? You instantly feel like I am less than. I don't have value because I didn't go to school. I didn't have these opportunities. I felt like they weren't there. And so because you feel less than, you start to say, well, what can I do to actually cover up? How can I cover up the shame? How can I cover up the absence, the, the stuff that's missing? How can I cover that up? And so the way to do it is to obtain what we think is 
the American dream, right? Money, right? If I can get money and I can buy all these things, it can cover up my inadequacies. And so this is kind of why our guys, you see them where they can stand on the block. They're more comfortable, even though there was just a drive-by shooting that just happened on this same <laughs> corner, right? Two minutes later, they're right back on the same corner. And you're like, what is this? Why won't these guys just leave and go to a new community and go find a job and, and all these things? But here's the sense in it. When your value is attached to success and you're not familiar with success, if you have not accomplished success, you're going to stay with what you know, right? So going on a job interview is more scary than stand on that block where they just shot up two or three or four people because your value is attached to your success. And if I go on a job interview and I don't get that job, it's going to further confirm for me that I am worthless, that I don't have value. And this is what the world has continually told people, you know, coming up like in the projects where I come from. And so these guys, 99 times out of 100, they will stay on the corner versus filling out a job application and going in for an interview. I'm just curious, like, how did you sort of break out of that cycle? Sure. I actually had an experience of hearing the gospel in a way that just hit me at my deepest core, right? I didn't have a dad growing up. I met him two or three times. Your dad is supposed to provide and protect you, right? Your dad is is representing God to you like your heavenly father, right? And when you don't have that, you're completely lost, right? And so that's why, for me, I was wondering. I see how families should be, and then I look at my reality, and that was like, man, this is night and day. Something's off here. So I had all these questions, man. My dad was murdered at when I was 13, um, and he was tossed in the sewer. And um, his body was decomposed and, and um, so badly that they, you know, the only way they could recognize him was through dental records. Um, and so for me, I was I was searching for purpose. I was searching for answers. I was searching for, there has to be something more. And I heard the gospel. I heard the gospel in a way that I think very few people communicated. But it was communicated to me, like God is your heavenly father, right? Like he loves you. He will never leave or forsake you. Even when you don't hear his voice, He's there. Even in the quietness, God is there. And I was yearning for, I was yearning for, right? Because you learn a lot from your dad, right? You, there's a lot of things you get, right? Yeah. Teach me how to catch a football. Teach me how to play baseball. Teach me how to, you know, ride a bike, how to swim, how to tie a tie. How, to, how do I talk to my first girl, right? How, right? how do I do all this, right? It's supposed to come from dad, right? And it wasn't there. So I was searching, searching. And the gospel was presented as God is your heavenly father. He won't leave you. I had experienced that early. I was traumatized. I was given a little Gideon Bible, and we started getting into scriptures at a after-school program that I, I was a part of. We started diving into the scriptures, man, and, and I made it a profession of faith. And I was curious about, like, what is this new life that 
that I've been promised in Christ. And so I started going and getting in my Bible and reading and reading and reading. God was just filling me up so much through his scriptures. And then I actually got a, a, a mentor, a youth pastor, who took a lot of interest in me, right, who really supported me, who prayed with me, who discipled me, who walked with me through these tough times, through the murders, you know, my dad, through my older brother losing his life, one other brother being killed. And so just having this, like, continued heartbreak, 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 took like, this is reality. No, what's real reality? And just knowing, like, seeing the opposite lifestyle and what that was leading to and God calling me in a clear, really true way, speaking to me. This right here, this is where I need to be, right? So it was like night and day. And when that light switched on, it was like I knew that this was the truth, right? There's a point you come and say, man, I know this is true, the truth of who God is and all the things he say about who I am, my purpose. It helped me tremendously, man. I had a lot of issues coming up in Cabrini, trying to live a life that pleased God. Through this book of Daniel, one of the themes that we're really hitting on is this idea of like having eyes to see the world the way that God does. Yeah, having eyes to see God's purpose in community or for my life at a young age was really, it was almost like the matrix, right? Yeah. You're going to take the blue pill or you're going to take the red pill, right? Are you going to deal with reality and what the truth was? And I decided to say, I'm going all in. For Jesus, I believe what thus says the Lord about who I am, whose I am, and the new life that I've been given. And so I go full steam ahead. (laughs) I was disowned by my community, my friends, everybody that I thought was, you know, somebody near and dear to me. Because what God was calling me to was cross-cultural ministry. Coming up in our community was unheard of in in the 80s, right? Family comes from the South. We're running from slavery. We're running from Jim Crow. We're running from all these things. And we come to to the North, Chicago, which is segregated in itself for a number of different reasons. But in your community, in the 60s, Martin Luther King come to Cabrini, right? And so there was this sense of black pride. You can make it. We've overcome anything. We can do it. We don't need anybody else. And this was kind of a teaching that has some good points to it. But it was super divisive. And so God was calling me to a unique space of cross-culturally, right? Our pastor was a white guy from Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And my youth pastor was a black guy uh, from the south side of Chicago, right? And so we have these world colliding. And I'm learning from both sides. But culturally, like, what is this? And I'm wondering why God is allowing this because in Cabrini— you would get guys like, man, you you got that white guy on, man, that's your daddy, right? <laughs> and this white just guy heckling, yeah. just heckling, right? Just heckling. It's all kind of, man, y'all know what the white folks done to y'all, and y'all and you trying to go over there and y'all in the church with a white dude, right? Like just like noise. But I had to understand that God was doing something that I had no clue about back then. And now I see why. God has allowed me to be the executive director over a multicultural organization.
culturally we're reckoning with a lot of, you know, racial disparity, financial disparity. You've got political disparity happening. (laughs) Like so much is going on. What's your perspective on what our culture is going through? I think what was starting to become more understood is that we are all fallen, right? We're all sinners. And except God being in our lives and actually the Holy Spirit being at work in us, we are all prone to fall to do the most worst things, right? Even though we don't think we are, right? That's what sin has done to our world. Because of that, it manifests itself in different ways, in different avenues, in different lanes. We're starting to see the depravity of man more vividly. A lot of people are a little nervous because of that. I am hopeful. I am hopeful because, like you said, I grew up where we buried over 500 people in my Cabrini community. A lot of it from senseless violence, a lot of it from hatred, a lot of it at the hands of police officers, all those things. So I've experienced that, right? I've experienced being racial profiled. I've experienced being thrown on the hood of a police car and humiliated. I've had guns put up to my head by police officers. I've been in a space where I felt like I had zero power. Even as a man of God, even as as a person who was on the front lines to say the violence in our community shouldn't be here. Even while standing on the side of justice, right, I've been myself personally oppressed in this manner. And so what I realize is that until we are fully committed to what the gospel is, until we are sold out, I'm willing to die for Christ. I'm willing to die for the gospel. We won't see change. We won't see change. And so, like the story of Daniel, right? One of the ideas is that you have to be a, willing to be a martyr for the Lord. I'm not going to bow down to the system. I'm not going to bow down to oppression. I'm not going to bow down to the lies that our culture teaches us one way or the other, even if the Lord don't save me or pull me out. I'm not going to bow down to that. That's been my understanding of racism with oppression, right, with inequities and funding, education, (laughs) politics, like all of those things. So when I grew up as a kid and I saw the world as a helpless, unsecured kid, I had no other choice but to run into the arms of Jesus the only safety that I knew for sure. And that's what has to happen today in our world. Until we get to a point where we are unapologetic about our stance for what Jesus is and how we love people through their mess, right? We all fall. We all mess up. Sometimes the police don't get it right. Sometimes they're doing their job and the guy made the wrong decision, right? And how do I, as a black man, say that in In the hood, right? Like, hey, man, the police was right this time, bro. I don't know what y'all talking about, right? That reality is the the truth that I had to live in always, right? There's going to be people who don't like me on either side because I stand for justice, the justice that Jesus calls us to. And so that's that sacrifice of I'm all out. I'm going to die for what I believe in. And you might not like me. Either side may not like me, but I'm going to stand for the truth. And long term, what I've seen God do, I've seen him do this. Those same people who didn't like me because of my stance, 
they came back and was like, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate your stance. I appreciate your boldness. I appreciate you standing for righteousness when it wasn't the popular decision. As the church, it's about time we start saying something, yeah. right? <laughs> Especially as like a mostly white, yeah. <laughs> large, wealthy church, yeah, right? exactly. I would, I would say to them, the folks that are kind of like on the fence, kind of, I know, like I've experienced, I've witnessed, I've seen all these things that are happening. I just didn't know my place in it. I just didn't know the right space in it, right? We have a lot of folks like that. Yeah. And what I would say is God will create a time and a space for you to speak and to enter into the space with humility, but also with power. There's a lot that, that needs to be learned in that, right? Because there's people who've been dealing in this space for a long while. But I think it's our unity when we come together that's going to actually change things, right? What we see as the greatest thing coming out of Black Lives Matter, all these things, is that we're getting folks to actually start talking about race. We're actually talking about what is the church's responsibility in this for years, for decades. We've been complicit. I'm not going to speak. I'm turning a deaf ear, a blind eye to the atrocities happening. And God always continues to give us an opportunity to jump in and actually be used by him. And so I tell folks, right, like right now, there is no greater time. The world is looking for change and the truth in which we bring this message. It's not a black man message. It's not a it's not a, a condemning message. It's none of that. We're not passing blame. The message is the time is now for believers to step into this space and lead. Typically, we always last one to the party. And now the world has no solution. The gospel is the solution. And we have to bring race, justice, and all of that in a biblical context. When we start having these conversations, not in a slavery this, oppression that, but in a, this is what God says believers should be doing when we see people made in the image of the king being mistreated, being oppressed. What is your call? What is your duty? And so as we start saying it from a biblical space, believers start to hear God's voice in that. They're my sheep and they know my voice. They hear my voice. And so when we start speaking from a biblical stance, it makes sense. But the church has never led in this conversation because historically, most of the pastors and those faith leaders, their studies are in, you know, Hebrew <laughs> and this, that and the other, right? But we've never really dived deep into this black experience, oppression how our believers call to engage. And so now as we start talking about this more, pastors, all those folks, the lay leaders, people in the in, in the church, in the pews, they've seen it and God's written the truth on their heart and they know the truth. And so as we start to engage, I would tell folks that the time is now to hear God's voice speaking in this struggle against these atrocities. Where is Jesus speaking to you through this? And then what are we called to do and say? It's beautiful.
I think the message to the church, being born African-American, there's been a lot of sacrifice that has been made on, on the side of African-Americans, especially those who are called to do cross-cultural ministry. For a while, I was debating um, if I was going to actually leave, right? Like, be done with the white church, right? Because, because there, it feels like there are systems that are in place in the church, and the church either, one, doesn't recognize it, or two, it is the easy way to do life and to do church, and so that's how we're going to operate. And so if I was to speak just frankly to the church and believers, my big message would be to believe what your African-American and brown believers, brothers and sisters, have to say. Hear their stories. Understand their plight. And then um, how... How is God speaking to you through that? Because a lot of times when you feel invalued, right, you feel less than, your word doesn't matter, right? Who you are doesn't matter. And I can say one thing to a group of people, and then a white person can come up and say a thing to and then they take it wholesale, right? They're like, oh, yeah, this is good. I got it. Give me, give me, I got it, right? Yeah. And so when we start talking about the atrocities that are happening in our communities, um, right? Um, it's important that that we are heard, right? It's important that 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 information is being shared is privileged information, and it's for the growth of the big C church, right? The church as a whole. And I try and speak for those who don't have a voice to speak to the church, and I try to do it in a way that that communicates well, that's seasoned with salt and love. But there's been a lot of hurt. There's been a lot of letdown. There's been a lot of trust broken. Uh, when we talk about elections and all these things and people voting their interest and understanding the plight that some folks are going through and saying, hey, I understand that, but hey, I got to make sure my taxes are, yeah, this is why I'm voting this way. And then as believers, justifying some of the, the blatant wrong, you know, those decisions made, right? How do you justify them? Well, you, you know, you justify them. And that's, that's more hurtful. That's super hurtful. And so as we try to do life together, let's be real. You think about, you talked about the struggle in our, our poor communities, like in Chicago, in these hoods. The problem is a ministry, a poor African-American ministry is less supported than a white ministry, even in the same communities, right? I was in Cabrini, and there were ministries that just came in that were getting millions of dollars. And I was like, hey, man, I'm, I've been here. I know everybody here, half these folks, I took their parents to the, to the hospital to, to birth them, right? I've been doing this work for generations, 30 years, and I cannot get support. I just can't get support. And when you've done this for so long, you look at the fruit, you look at the fruit of an organization and what they've accomplished in our communities. What have you accomplished in our communities? The numbers of folks that you're supposed to reach, right? These guys are all in jail. They're selling drugs. You got six, seven baby mamas, all these issues. And the business leadership that knows how to actually impact the community can't get support, right? We're kind of stepped over 
pushed to the side. That's a hurt that most <laughs> executive directors, most organizations, especially folks of color, they won't say that. Yeah. Right? Because the fear that I'm going to ostracize myself, God has allowed me to be in a space where I really don't care, right? I know what truth is. I've always stood for it. When the Holy Spirit says, speak, then I speak. And so sometimes I'm quiet, but then there's other times where I say, I have to, I have to say this because if one of the things we say, this is said in the, in the hood is there is no white privilege without black inferiority, right? It doesn't exist, right? If you don't stand for what you believe in, say I stand for Christ and I'm, and I'm being bold about it and I'm going to speak up every single opportunity I can about this. If you don't say anything, then folks are okay with just saying, oh, they're fine with it. I mean, this is the way it goes. And Complacency is its own judgment, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So just a small word I would put out there. Again, thank you for saying that. You're so right. And so it should drive us to action. That's that's the difficult thing that I think we need to reckon with, especially as the church, like you said. Like, you know, what is our motivation and what? how are we actually supporting and speaking with, with our actions? So Yeah, no, that's good, man. This is a burden that, you know, you carry and we see it and I just wish more people could see it. I want to just name one thing, you know, as a black man, this is a trying time. Sure. You've got so many dumb white people. (laughs) Like, it's just like (laughs) speaking for myself, but you've got to educate and work through this issue too. And like, it's exhausting. It is. You know, and I like, so thank you for doing that. Not only that, but just like, thank you for doing it from a faith context. Sure. It's so easy for us to use faith as a way to put hope in front of people and be like, listen, you have hope. Yeah, you have oppression, but you have hope. And so you guys just like chill. Sure. But like doing it in a way that hits that gap. That's what Jesus did. Yeah. He stood in the gap between the one group and the other group and everybody hated him for it. Yeah. But that's what we're called to do, right? Yeah. And so... Thank you for doing that. And I know it is exhausting. <laughs> I can't even, cannot even imagine, you know, I'm not there. Sure. And that's, that is truly like a, just a piece of my privilege that, you know, you're coming to terms with, like, sure. I can't speak from experience in this. And yeah. so, yeah, truly thank you for, for doing that. Thank you so much. God's vision for the church is for us to join that creating work by serving our communities being a lifeline to those in our world who need it the most, and being a family that welcomes everyone. It can be easy to lose sight of that purpose while in pursuit of numerical success, exciting experiences, or comfortable stability. But if we truly want to embody God's values, our greatest concern should be seeking justice for the marginalized, welcoming and caring for the immigrant, and accepting and loving the addict, even if they never conform to our agenda or offer us something in return. Kevin stands in this gap, the gap between those who would ignore a broken system and those the system has exploited. And it's up to us to advocate with him. With that in mind, it's our responsibility as the church to embrace listening and then acting, voting, praying, and promoting communities of color in the ways they actually need it. So as we engage the book of Daniel, we must ask ourselves if we have the eyes to see the beautiful work that God is doing. Do we see those around us through the eyes of God or through the eyes of man? Are we living in the way of Daniel or are we living in the way of the Nebuchadnezzars of the world? 
Do we use our power to raise up the least of these? Or for our own personal gain or comfort? Do these questions make us uncomfortable? Like Nebuchadnezzar, one can acknowledge God's greatness, but it's our actions that show whether we truly understand what it means to live out God's justice and righteousness. This is an apocalypse. This is a reckoning with ourselves and the world around us. Together, let's embrace the apocalypse as we begin seeing people how God sees them, with eyes to see and ears to hear. To learn more about Kevin and his organization, go to urchicagoalliance.org. That's the letters urchicagoalliance.org, and they'd love to hear from you. This episode was recorded as a part of the Journey Through Daniel study at Willow Creek North Shore, a location of Willow Creek Community Church. It was produced by me, Tyler Hoff, with contributing producers Caleb Wilcox and Grace Zerker, and edited by Abby Circatella. Special thanks to our audio engineer, Matthew Skripsinski. And if you haven't, jump in with us for the journey through Daniel. We start day six this Monday. We'll see you then.